This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Welcome back. I was checking my Twitter feed the other day, and I read this headline. Computer-generated influencers are making more money than ever. Next to this headline was a photograph of what appeared to be a very lovely, avant-garde, beautiful young woman with pink hair. And she was gazing into the camera, and she looks totally real. She's not, of course. The products that she's hawking, this computer-generated image, well, those products are real. The dye for the hair, the sweater, the yoga pants, the sneakers. All those things are real and for sale. But the, but the person selling it, this computer-generated image, well, it, it's obviously not real. It's computer-generated. Well, that's weird. It's a smart business idea, though, isn't it? Generate an influencer. Create one. Then you don't need to waste time with all the photo shoots, do you? You just crank these things out. Invest the money in all the computer equipment once, and then you have an endless supply of influencers to hawk your wares. The imagery created by these computers is so realistic that the human mind cannot tell the difference. The human mind believes it. What a strange new world we live in. Or maybe it's not that strange, and maybe it's not that new. The human mind has always had limits. That's why we're forced to use things called heuristics. And we always have. Heuristics are shorthands. They're techniques or approaches used to problem solve or to discover things where we make a broad inference from a small piece of data, a heuristic. Humans have been doing this for, well, as long as there have been humans. And we use heuristics because we have to sort through all this information in our world. And we always have. And we got to boil it down to the one or two or three most important pieces of information upon which we can make a snap decision and then move on. I was speaking to a home builder, a friend of mine on the East Coast. He said he always spends extra money on the doors and the doorknobs in a house. So that when people open and close the doors as they're going through the house that he's just built, they'll feel how heavy and solid the doors are and the door handles are so expensive, and they'll make inferences about the rest of the house. That may or may not be true, by the way. They'll infer that the rest of the house is high quality, built of expensive materials, because the doors and the doorknobs, things which they can handle, are high quality and made of expensive materials. The rest of the house may be you know, made of sawdust and balsa wood, for all they know. But because the doors and the doorknobs feel good, inspection of the rest of the house is not required. Because our computers can generate an influencer, a person, a salesperson, who looks great in certain products, which are arranged in this computer image around this fake influencer in some fake situation, our minds then assume we're going to look great wearing those sneakers and dyeing our hair that color pink. We use heuristics. Our mind boils things down to the basics to come up with broad generalizations and inferences, to make decisions based on, well, very narrow pieces of perception. We do this all the time and have. This being making broad judgments based on one or two or three pieces of data 
one or two or three heuristics. And of course, our use of heuristics have real-time effects. Some of this use of heuristics we're quite conscious of. We do it quite intentional. Sometimes we do it just because. State troopers, they've learned, use the color red as a heuristic for people who speed. If you drive a red car, you may or may not speed more than other people, but your chance of getting pulled over for speeding is higher because red is used by state troopers as a heuristic. Possibly because red is more noticeable, possibly because state troopers make some sort of inference about people who choose red, that they're more aggressive and more likely to break the rules. None of this is true, by the way, or none of it's provable. Nonetheless, if you choose to drive a red car and a red sports car, your chances of getting pulled over, whether you speed or not, are higher than other people on the road who don't drive a red car, who may be speeding more. Psychologists and increasingly marketers study the heuristics that humans react to more than others, and they manipulate them. They try to get inside your head because they know something about humans that most humans don't know. They know that most humans aren't aware that they're using heuristics, A, and if they are aware, they know that most humans still aren't really paying attention to their own thought patterns, their own decisions. And so we live in a world now where we're being bombarded with heuristics to make us come to some sort of conclusion. The beautiful young woman staring into the camera with pink hair. She almost makes me feel, as I look at her, that she'll approve of me as a male if I buy her products. Or that as a female, if you buy these products, you'll get the attention of other females or other males. Or There's some, something to be gained here. Some sort of approval to be garnered from this thing this image that's been generated by a computer programmed by some guy in his basement with sci-fi movies playing in the background makes one ask the question about what else is fake? How else am I being manipulated? What is my mind doing to me? Something we've talked about a lot on this podcast before. What exactly is your mind doing to you and why? The more you pay attention the more aware you are of your own mental processes, the better, for sure. And it's kind of scary, darn right scary, when you start to think about just how exactly you're making decisions and how you think they're so good, and maybe they're terrible. We live in a world of propaganda. We live in a world of manipulation, of mob think, of something. I was going to say people, but I'm not even sure if it's people anymore. Something computer-generated, electronic forces that are trying to persuade you to do something. And narratives become gospel facts, never having been verified or scrutinized merely because the entire world is using heuristics to make decisions that come to conclusions. Because we only have so much time. We only have so much mind space. All of it at times adds up to, especially in this virtual world in which we're now all living, All of it adds up to the question, just what exactly is real? And does reality matter? The second question, perhaps more important than the first, because why take the red pill if reality can't be discerned and even if it could, doesn't even matter? You understand the reference to the red pill, I assume, but maybe you don't. So this is what I mean by taking the red pill and 
to all you sci-fi geeks out there, sorry for the repetition here. The red pill is what Neo took in the Matrix. And the red pill enabled Neo to see the world as it was in the movie The Matrix. All humanity was living in some sort of computer-generated illusion. And anyone who took the red pill could see reality. And the reality was that humans were being harvested for their energy and were hooked up to a, a huge computer network, which was pumping fake influencer-like images into their brains to keep them docile while they were being enslaved for their energy. Well, that's creepy. That's a horrible reality. You know, and so do, do you want to know that reality? Do you want to enter that reality? Or should you just take the blue pill and remain oblivious in your computer-generated illusion? You know, and so while we're using heuristics, poorly maybe, do we really want to know how poorly we're using them? I don't know. Deep questions. Who can sort them? Of course, there's always one commodity, whether you're living inside the matrix or out, whether you're living in a computer-generated hologram, as some physicists think, or you're living in a solid, hard, and fast, real world. And the one thing that's always constant is attention. Your attention cannot be faked. Whether you're living in the matrix, whether you're a slave to heuristics, whether you believe people who drive red cars speed, whether you believe the girl with purple hair is real or not. However, you're being manipulated by Dasman, by propaganda. One thing is clear, in spite of all that is fake, your attention is never fake. You can put your attention on fake things, or you can put it on things that are very real. But the attention itself, well, that can never be fake. And so the bigger question when you look at a photograph really ought not be whether it's real or fake, but it should be where are you putting your attention? And is the object of your attention, the place where you're investing it, is that worth it? People don't like questions like, is something worth it? Because it's sort of a judgy question, isn't it? Is it worth it? Oh, who's going to judge my blah, blah, blah. Of course, only you can judge. But you're never going to be able to judge whether the object of your attention is worth it until you begin to be aware of just exactly how you're spending your attention. You better know what you're putting your attention on because that's going to shape everything for you. Some people practice focusing their attention. They use meditation or exercise or daily reading or study habits as a way to train and focus and control their attention, to make their attention a tool that they use. People actually practice focusing their attention on what they want to the exclusion of everything else. And there's all sorts of techniques. I mean, they're, they're not complicated, and they're all basically the same. They basically amount to focusing on something to the exclusion of all the other things that are demanding your focus. Meditation, prayer, hikes, scripture reading, good book reading, And the goal for all these practices is the same. You want to get to the point where you can proactively, because of your own decision, because of your own choice, your own free choice, place your attention on what you want to place your attention on. It's hard at the beginning to learn how to do this. When I started to become aware of my inability to control my attention, my my inability to stop being pulled into the magnetic attention grabbers out there in the world, real and fake, 
I used things to help me. One tool that helped me a lot was headphones. Not just headphones, but headphones that would fill my head with something that I wanted it to be filled with. A good book. The Old Testament. Good music. Something that would stream into my head that was better than the thoughts or the attention grabbers that I didn't want to put my attention on. It was hard initially to control my attention. When you're younger, you get the wiggles. When you're older, you're dealing with anxiety that you're not doing something you're supposed to be doing. So when I first began to be aware that, hey, maybe I ought to control my attention, I would use things to help me do that because I couldn't really do it on my own. So I'd use earplugs, which would block out all the, the audible noise out there. Or I'd use headphones, which would then fill my mind with something that, while it was attention-grabbing too, it was at least something that I wanted to put my attention towards. But then over time, you learn to just use your attention as you want to focus on the thoughts, ideas, situations, states that you want, that you prefer, than all the chaos, than all the yelling and screaming. Things that you prefer instead of all the propaganda and all the manipulation, all the efforts by others to get you to do what they want. Because it's way better to focus your attention on things you want instead of being a slave to the endless bombardment of heuristics offered up by others who are trying to manipulate you. And by the way, the they, the proverbial they in this may not even be aware that they're doing it. Well, it seems to me that that's something that we ought to be aware of and try to avoid in life, judgments aside. And over time, you realize that it really matters what's flowing through you, what you give your attention to, because that amounts to something that flows through you. And this stuff that flows through you often has a life of its own, an energy of its own. And if you're constantly sending things through your soul via your attention, over time, whatever gunk is in that builds up inside you. We've all had the experience of pulling out a filter of some sort, an air filter, an oil filter. Well, filters over time, any filter over time gets clogged with the gunk that it's filtering out. And that's what happens to you. If you're drawing things into you via your attention, all that gunk is going to build up inside you. And it's going to need to be slowly flushed out or, or metabolized or transformed or something. And it's one thing to have a filter. Filters are great. But you know what's even better? Not putting the gunk into the system to begin with. I mean, it's one thing to have a water filter. That's fine. But you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather drink from a pure stream. Then you don't even need the filter. The gunk never gets in. It never builds up. And that process begins with you using your attention proactively. Being aware of what's grabbing it, hijacking it, using it as an entry point into you your soul. And getting a hold of that process begins with getting a hold of your own attention. This is not a new idea. This is not novel at all. And yet, every generation that's ever come to the earth has to learn it for themselves. Every generation has to learn of all the ideas, of all the heuristics, of all the people screaming and yelling, all the attention grabbing, all the stimulation, all the illusions, all the false promises out there that each and every individual is the one who controls the attention. And controlling your attention begins with being aware, moment by moment by moment. And then being proactive, moment by moment by moment. Proactive with your attention. There's a guy in the Old Testament, Moses, you may have heard of him, born a slave, Because when Moses was born, all the children of Israel were slaves. 
the story of Moses is interesting. You ought to read it. It's a little different than it's portrayed in movies like The Ten Commandments or the way it's portrayed in movies like The Prince of Egypt. The story of Moses as written in the scriptures, well, it's a little different than these commercialized versions. They get the origin sort of right. Moses was, in fact, born a slave because all the children of Israel were slaves. Slaves in Egypt, where they had been residing for more than 400 years. It's hard in the abstract to get your arms around how long 400 years is. But here's how long it is. It was 400 years ago that the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts. Think of all that has happened since then. Well, that's how long the children of Israel had been living in Egypt by the time Moses came along. By the time Moses came along, the entire population was enslaved. And not only were they enslaved, they were a growing population. And the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who had enslaved them, well, he and his predecessors, he began to worry that they were going to rise up because they were getting too big, getting too numerous. And so in an effort to control the population of his enslaved workforce, he told the midwives to kill all the male babies. That was the preferred method to keep an enslaved population down. Kill all the males. Because, at least in ancient times, they were probably relatively harder to subdue. Initially, the midwives of the children of Israel refused to do this. They refused to kill the male babies. So then Pharaoh said, okay, we're just going to take all the male babies. We're going to round them up and we're going to throw them into the Nile. That's creepy. Well, this is when Moses was born. And his mother thought he'd have a better chance of survival if she took him as an infant, by the way, and put him in a wicker basket, lined it with pine pitch so it would float, and then put him in the Nile that way. So she sort of complied. She put her son in the river. To anyone who's a parent, to anyone who's held their own newborn child, it's quite a thing to think of placing your own child in a basket and then floating that basket out into a river, leaving the fate of that child entirely in the hands of God. That'd be quite a thing. Well, that's what Moses' mother did. The basket floated down the Nile, and luckily, Pharaoh's own daughter, the man who issued the edict, his daughter was bathing in the Nile. And she saw the basket float by with a child in it. And she knew it was one of the slave children. Nonetheless, she went out and hauled it in. And this is where the story between the commercialized versions as portrayed in the Ten Commandments and the Prince of Egypt and the scriptures diverges even more. Because the daughter of Pharaoh didn't try to trick anyone into thinking that this slave child Moses was her child. Nonetheless, she kept this child, almost as if Moses were her pet. Moses' sister was on the banks of the river watching all this, and she went up to Pharaoh's daughter and said, Hey, I, kn- I know a wet nurse who can nurse this child. Are you interested? And of course, that was Moses's own mother. So Pharaoh's daughter pulls Moses out of the river. Moses's sister then goes up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, Hey, I know a wet nurse who can nurse this young child you've just pulled out of the river. And that wet nurse, by the way, was Moses's own mother. And so that's how Moses grew up. He grew up a ward of sorts of the daughter of Pharaoh, being nursed by his own mother, aware that he was a member of this enslaved group of people, yet growing up in privilege of sorts. The movies portray Moses as as some sort of adopted son of Pharaoh and someone who didn't know his own true identity. And I don't think any of that's true at all. Everyone knew, Moses included, that he was 
you know, a slave child, a Hebrew. And the edict to kill all the children at the time of Moses' birth was not to, to kill you know, the, the Messiah or the Savior of the Hebrews. It was just population control. So no one cared that Moses survived. No one thought of him as being anything special. Nonetheless, he wasn't part of anyone's world, was he? He wasn't really an Egyptian, even though he was living among the Egyptians. He wasn't really a Hebrew slave because, well, he wasn't out making bricks, you know, and hauling stuff around like his parents, like his sister. Yet he knew of them, but he wasn't really one of them. You know, his situation is probably more analogous to the house slaves during old antebellum South slave days in the U.S. The house slaves were slaves, but they lived better than the rest of the slaves often, and the rest of the slaves often resented the house slaves. However you want to think about it, Moses grew up differently. He wasn't really attached to anything. I think the result is that enabled him to have a certain freedom with his attention, a certain freedom because of his detachment to be more objective about the heuristics, the propaganda, the cultural manipulations that he experienced. He grew up with a certain independence. And well, that's the first step of learning to proactively use your own attention. We know that Moses was almost sui generis, which is a fancy way of saying in a class by himself, unique, because he wasn't an Egyptian. He wasn't really a slave. He wasn't really his mother's son. He wasn't really Pharaoh's daughter's son. He wasn't really in Pharaoh's court, but he was close to Pharaoh physically. He wasn't really a slave, but he saw the slaves. He could empathize, sort of. He was just Moses. And if you want to start using your own attention proactively on your own terms, if you want to even begin that process, you have to recognize yourself as you. Moses' independence was manifested when he became of age. And he did something quite remarkable. One day, he noticed an Egyptian guard beating up an Israelite slave. And Moses, sui generis Moses, saw this, and he thought it was unfair, and he also worried about the life of the Israelite man, the Israelite slave. So he went over to the Egyptian guard, and he defended the slave against the guard, and a fight ensued. And Moses, in the fight, beat the crap out of the Egyptian guard and killed him. And then he buried the Egyptian guard's body in the sand. I mean, this would be like seeing, you know, some policeman in modern time sort of clubbing some guy, and then going over to the policeman and beating him up so badly, you know, beating him to death, the policeman. And then putting the policeman's body in the back of your pickup truck and heading out to the hills and burying it. I mean, that's basically what Moses did. I mean, he did it presumably in defense of this Israelite slave. Still pretty brazen. I mean, it'd be brazen for you to go up to a cop who is beating up some guy with a club even if the cop was totally out of line. I mean, it'd be very brazen for you to go up and intervene. Well, that's what Moses did. That was a brazen act. Now, I'm not advocating murder or manslaughter or, or any of that. I'm not saying you ought to go out and you know, kill people. That, that's not the lesson here. That's not the takeaway, anyone listening. The takeaway is that M- Moses was doing something that most people wouldn't even consider because of their attachments to their culture, their complete subservience to propaganda and the heuristics and the manipulations of the Dasman in which they lived. But Moses was independent of all this. He did things proactively. 
one could say this was a righteous defense of this poor Israeli slave. I'm going to leave all those judgments aside. I merely raise this incident because it, it shows how differently Moses thought about things. Sadly for him, though, someone did see him. Ironically, it was other slaves. And they went up to him afterwards and they said, hey, we saw what you did to that Egyptian guard. We're going to tell on you. And they did. And Pharaoh found out about it. And Pharaoh sentenced Moses to death. So that rules out Moses being some sort of favored adopted son, doesn't it? Well, when Moses caught wind of his sentence, he split. He fled into Midian. In Midian, this pattern of relatively independent, fearless actions continued. While in Midian, one of the first things that happened to Moses was that he ran into a bunch of sheep rustlers. And these sheep rustlers, these rogue shepherds, were attempting to steal the flocks of a man named Jethro. And they were attempting to steal Jethro's flocks because Jethro had no sons to tend his flocks. He only had daughters. And in ancient times, rogue shepherds, sheep rustlers, probably saw huge flocks being tended to by only women as a right target. I'm not agreeing with that, by the way, so don't send me an email telling me how sexist and misogynist I am. I'm just saying it's probably reasonable to think that those shepherds at the time in ancient Midian saw these flocks tended to by daughters of Jethro, by girls or women only, as well, easy pickings. Again, Moses saw this, witnessed this, and stepped in, partly, again, because he was part of no world and could make his own judgments. He was not an Egyptian, yet he had been expelled by Egypt. He was not a slave, but he was the child of slaves. Now he was in the land of Midian, but he was not from that land. His mind, his attention was unclouded by all the heuristics and propaganda and stimulation and all the fears associated with it. He was free to place his attention on right and wrong and good and evil as he saw it, as he was inspired to see it. Then he went up and defended the flocks of Jethro against these rogues. In reward for that act, Jethro took Moses in. Moses married one of Jethro's daughters and settled into a life in Midian as a shepherd himself. And then something truly remarkable happened for Moses. By the way, we're just entering Exodus chapter 3. Everything that I've spoken about thus far occurred in chapters 1 and 2. Now we're entering Exodus chapter 3 where it really gets interesting because it's in chapter 3 that Moses sees the burning bush, perhaps the most famous of all the tableaus of the Old Testament, the burning bush. And it's so interesting because it's a tr- it represents this transition, I think, between being easily manipulated by propaganda, by emotional heuristics, by culture and the scripts of others, and being guided by a higher power, God, love, light, source, the pure water, The mechanics of this process are told in such a pithy manner in chapter 3 of Exodus. I think Moses is tending the sheep of Jethro. He's up on the Mount of Horeb, minding his own business, or maybe not thinking anything at all, maybe just enjoying the beauty of it all, the tranquility of it all, when all of a sudden an angel emerges from a burning bush. Two weird things, an angel, and then that angel emerges out of a bush that's burning, But unlike a really dry scrub oak or sagebrush, this bush is not being consumed. It's just burning. 
like a, a gas fire in a gas fireplace. You know, those kind of fires that, you know, you turn the gas on and the, and the logs just glow, but they're never burnt up. Well, that's, so an angel emerges out of this bush that's burning like that one day while Moses is just, you know, tending his sheep. And th- this is a famous scene in the Old Testament. Everyone's heard of it. Everyone's seen it in the movies, the burning bush. Everyone knows what this image is, what it means. But no one talks about the most interesting part of this scene, which is verse 3 and verse 4 of chapter 3 of Exodus. So Moses is cruising along Mount Horeb with his flocks. He sees this angel. He sees there's this, you know, gas fireplace-like burning bush. And then in verse 3, he says, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And then in verse 4, And when the Lord saw that he, and the he is Moses, turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. What what an odd phrase in a way. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, I mean, that's what it says in verse four. Everyone thinks, at least I think everyone thinks, that if only they could see a burning bush themselves, well, then they'd know who to follow and how to follow God and how to get inspiration and, you know, blah, 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 blah. If only I saw a burning bush, then, well, it'd be easy. That seems to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? But in verse 4, and when the Lord saw that he, Moses, turned aside to see, that was when God called out to Moses. And the only reason Moses turned to see is because Moses was in a state where he would turn to see. And he was only in that state because he had already, a long time earlier, before this event, become aware of his attention, become proactive with his attention. He had become sui generis himself. He had freed himself from the manipulations, the cultural shorthands used by others, and himself to make illogical, unaware decisions. He had freed himself from the world, and therefore could follow the only pure source of knowledge and wisdom and light, God. And had he not reached that state, he would not have turned to look. You want to see your own burning bush? You want to drink the pure water that needs no filter? The light, it starts by separating yourself away and becoming aware and proactive. And if you start that process, if you seek in that way, if you knock in that way, One day you may find yourself peacefully alone, blissfully alone on your own proverbial Mount Horeb, doing whatever it is you do day by day by day. And some sort of metaphorical angel will emerge out of some sort of proverbial burning bush for you. And if you're ready, if you've become sui generis, you might turn and look. But until then, it'll all be invisible to you. Because you're just a slave, a slave to Dasman, to culture, to some screen, to some Twitter feed, a slave to some elusive form of happiness defined by someone else, a slave. But God is not found at the altar of the computer-generated social influencers. There's no shortcut heuristic to God or to light. It's a moment by moment, by moment, pursuit. 
that begins with your awareness. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time.